You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas, from BleacherReport.com, alongside, as always, your friend and mine from MMAJunkie.com, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, it's the super spooky Halloween episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast. I thought it felt spookier when I walked in here. I don't yeah. want to say anything, because I don't want to weird you out, but I felt like, man, it's it's like at least 20% spookier in here. We got fake spider webs and, and, and a bubbling pot of some kind of weird punch. Who knows what's going to happen, man? It's just going to be scary as shit in here. You got your costume together? No. I, my wife and I, this is for the radio listeners out there, uh, plan to attend a Halloween party at the at Casa de Folks on, uh, what is it, Friday? It's Friday. We have no idea what we're going to dress up as. Well. On top of that, we have no idea what we're going to dress our kid up as, which is a whole different kettle of fish. Since I don't know if this is true of your child, but my child is long since past the period where you can make her wear whatever the fuck you want. Yeah, we've we've recently passed that too, and uh, it was adorable for like five minutes. Uh, and now, when it's like cold outside because we live in freaking Montana, and you're trying to put a hat on her, and she immediately rips it off, and you're like, this could be a problem. Yeah, yeah. So Halloween's still up in the air. Hey, if any of the co-main event podcasts wonderful listenership out there has any ideas for what me and my wife and our kid should dress up as for halloween let me know because I, we need all the help we can get i'm at just this throwing point. it out there you and your wife go as old wwf tag team demolition and your daughter goes as mr fuji i actually thought of something like that especially after we got mr fuji uh especially after we got these professional wrestling uh lucha libre masks in the mail this week from uh, andreas down in mexico that I mean, the timing does work out quite nicely. Yeah, well, it would work out for me. I don't know what I don't know what my wife would do. Uh, ben, this week's music comes from listener Patrick Coast, and uh, he's also a d- guitar instrumentalist. If you like what you hear, you can check out his website at patrickdecoast.com. His last name is D E C O S T E. Patrick Decoast. Yeah, I wouldn't have got that. And uh, he also has a SoundCloud page, SoundCloud.com/slash Patrick Decoast. I'm guessing I know how to spell that now. D-E-C-O-S-T-E. Let's move on. on. Three rounds as usual this week for the co-main event podcast. In round number one, last Saturday at UFC 179, Jose Aldo and Chad Mendez proved you can put on one of the best fights of the year while simultaneously cheating your damn asses off. And in round number two... Phil Davis beat the bricks off Glover Tashira and then jumped on the mic to call out the greatest MMA fighter of all time. But somehow that just makes it sound better than it actually was. Way better than it was. And in round three, Cain Velasquez is injured again. And now Mark Hunt and Fab Verdum will compete to see who gets to have their career ruined by the UFC heavyweight championship. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me? Just saying stuff. Well, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff since Sir Nigel's on assignment? Yeah. Uh, Very important stuff for him today. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. 
The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Mike Morgan. He writes, so the UFC has decided to tempt the MMA gods yet again by facing their golden boy, Conor McGregor, against Dennis Seaver at UFC Fight Night in Boston. The UFC is desperate for headliners right now, but this seems like a huge risk. I know Dana is a gambler, but if the hype train for McGregor gets derailed against Seaver, the UFC just missed out on a gigantic fight. Is it worth risking a McGregor loss to have him headline an FS1 show and build his name? Uh, now, see, I don't know that I see this as a tremendous risk, although... I mean, any MMA fight is a risk. Right. Mike Morgan makes a solid point about the MMA gods that it, the, like the more advantageous the matchup seems for the golden boy, maybe the higher the likelihood that MMA Zeus is going to poke his finger down into the octagon and, and just, you know, knock Conor McGregor senseless. Yeah, that but, does sound like something MMA Zeus would do. I mean, in terms of like an actual physical fight matchup, if you didn't know what was going on with Conor McGregor's opponents before now, I think the... Uh, the tabbing of Dennis Seaver as his next opponent should pretty clearly spell out to you that the UFC is going to do everything it can to uh, not put him in a situation where it seems like he's going to lose. Yeah, it is an advantageous style matchup, you got to think. But it's also, it's different from the Dustin Poirier fight in that, like, if he'd lost a Dustin Poirier fight, I feel like people would have been more likely to, to give him a little bit of leeway there and say, well, okay, you know, he's a tough guy. Maybe you weren't quite ready for that yet. Maybe you will be soon. But if you do Dustin Poirier as an opponent and he knocks him out and looks great doing it, and then you go and do Dennis Seaver, then it seems like a step back. Right. Then it becomes one because of that, because of the timing of it, where you just can't afford to lose it. And right. again, like you said, it seems like he'll probably beat Dennis Seaver. Uh, you know, if they're thrown in there against Nick Lentz or some shit like that, then I'd have been like, okay. Yeah, now right. we're getting somewhere. Yeah. Now we now we might find some things out. Yeah, if you throw him in there against a really good wrestler, then I think that everybody's going to be like, okay, we're going to get some questions answered here. It doesn't seem like the UFC is going to do that. I mean, I guess if your options are, like, it seems like Mike Morgan is arguing here, hey, you got this this golden ticket here. Don't do anything to jeopardize it. Just go ahead and wait on right. Jose Aldo and throw Which, him in there. In fairness is what we thought they were going to do a little while ago before Conor McGregor jumped on the Twitters and, and kind of contradicted that. Yeah, well, it seemed like he just wanted to take whatever fight he could. And, you know, we also hear Cub Swanson saying the UFC has promised me that if I win my fight, uh, I'll get the next shot at Jose Aldo. So, you know, maybe they are taking a little bit more of a longer view than we assume they were when it comes to Conor McGregor. It just it does seem though like because of the the perception of the Dennis Seaver fight, it's really one that you can't lose. Yeah, I guess that's a good point. I hadn't thought of it that way, but because Dennis Seaver is not viewed as being as good as a guy like Dustin Poirier, you're right. It's it would look worse for Conor McGregor if he loses this fight. Can we talk about the weirdest thing about this fight, though? And that's that this is scheduled for, I believe it's January 18th is the date, which is the Sunday of both of the NFL Conference Championship games. Uh, the NFC Championship game will be on Fox, uh, and then the AFC Championship game is on a different network. I'm not sure which network. And then uh, uh, in order CBS to... CBS usually? Maybe, right. yeah. Not to, in order to ha not have this show headlined by Conor McGregor go uh, right up against the AFC Championship game, it sounds like the UFC is going to push back the start time a little bit. Uh, 
but we don't know how many fights they're going to have on this main card broadcast. We don't know how late it will be by the time the main event gets started, but it seems like a very strange position, at least to me, to put a guy in who you feel like is supposed to be one of your biggest draws now. You're putting him on this on this day that's already super crowded with other far more uh, popular sports programming, and you're kind of asking the American sporting public, even if you are going to get the opportunity to advertise it during the Fox broadcast, you're asking people to tune in uh to your fight night after they've already watched about eight hours of professional football which seems to me like uh, just a golden opportunity to score a really low rating i'm imagining all of our listeners in the fictional country of ireland just with these these looks on their faces right now that go between like baffled and angry that that you just went on this long thing about Football, the AFC Championship game. What do they care about the AFC Championship game when Wait. Dublin's favorite son is fighting? Come on, man. How many American people? American football. How many people are there in the fictional country of Ireland? I think it's like a like 160, 160, yeah. 175 maybe. Yeah. So you go ahead and and add six zeros to the end of that, <laughs> and you'll get close to the number of people that are going to watch the NFC and AFC Championship games. Uh, plus, this fight's on Fox Sports One, so technically. It's this fights for us, I believe, going by the okay. UFC. All right, uh, going by the UFC's metric. Yeah. There. Well, you know, when you were saying the weird thing about this, I thought you were going to say uh, the the ongoing Instagram post from Dana White, where it's just him and Conor McGregor just popping selfies together by the pool, hanging out with some drinking some umbrella drinks, out, drinks. Of, out of coconuts. That's right, out of literal coconuts. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm writing a thing about this that I think is going to come out tomorrow on Plug. Bleacher Report, but. Uh, you're right. It has gotten really weird. And at least uh, in the selfie that Dana White posted this morning where they're both on the private jet smiling like lottery winners and just <laughs> bro hugging it out, at least he had the presence of mind to use as the caption ready, set, hate and with hate in all capital letters in three with three exclamation points. So at least like that is a clue that he knows how this looks from the outside because previous to this, it seemed like maybe Dana White and Lorenzo Fertitta were both sort of oblivious to the fact that uh, it kind of looked like they were trying to prop up Conor McGregor not only as like their next, next big star, but also like their new best friend. Yeah, like teacher's pet kind of thing. Which, let's, let's face it, that's what Dana White did with Ronda Rousey like a year ago. So it's like there's some precedent for this, you know, precedent that goes back to uh, – to Chuck Liddell, really. And I mean, at least she was the champ, though. Right, that's the thing. Like, usually you're already at the top of your game once Dana White invites you on the plane and Lorenzo Fertitta lets you stay at his private suite at the Red Rocks and train at his gym, uh, which is allegedly the nicest MMA gym in the world. And they, by the way, go through my closet, too. You see anything you think will fit you? Go well, on, they, throw that on there. They frankly did do that since all those <laughs> new suits that Conor McGregor's wearing, he got specially tailored for him by a guy in Vegas. Uh, the sandwich? The one I'm eating right now? Ah, I'm not really hungry, man. You take it, Happens to be the tailor of Dana White and Lorenzo Fertitta. So... That's pretty weird to me. I'm yeah. not sure there's anything explicitly untoward about it, unless your name happens to be Dustin Poirier or Dennis Seaver, yeah, get, in mean, which case you're probably kind of pissed about it, I would well, think. And also, like, haven't we seen how this can backfire on people? Like, we saw it with uh, Elite XC and Kimbo Slice and, and all that stuff where it creates this like perception, uh, quite rightly, it seems, that when you put this guy in a fight, it's because you want him to win. 
And so then, you know, that's not a position you want to be in as the fight promoter, like where everybody knows that you're hoping for this guy to come out on top. Because if he doesn't come out on top, then everybody's going to, you know, jump right on you, and it's a bunch of LOLs right in your face there. Uh, Plus, it just seems like when you do announce a fight booking for the guy, everybody, they start from a position of assuming that you're trying to prop this dude up. And you're not really helping that by, uh, you know, trying to be best friends with the guy. I mean, just imagine, try to imagine Dana White and Dennis Seaver shooting a, a selfie while they're sitting down over Pilsners or something, and just how much disbelief you have to suspend to even get your brain to picture it. It doesn't work. I would be into that, I frankly. Know you, you know who we should not ask about this? King Mo. <laughs> okay. Next question comes to us from Trevor from Toronto. He writes, Neil Magny notched his fifth win in 2014 on Saturday night over William Macario, and no one really cares. Magny has spent just over 65 minutes in the cage this year. Why is it that a guy like Magny can fight five times in one year, but all the popular seemingly healthy fighters get scheduled for fights that are sometimes nine months away? Uh, why can't the UFC slot in potential pay-per-view draws five times a year? Uh, ouch for Neil Magny, I guess, a little bit. Um, I guess I think my short answer to Trevor's question would would be willingness and monies. Yes, because like if you're not if your name's not Donald Cerrone and you're making you know six figures to fight, uh, you don't have to fight more than twice a year. Right. And which, why, why would you? Why and, would and, you? And when you're at the or you know not necessarily at the bottom of the rankings, but at least down there a little bit. There's way more options, you know, like if you're if you're like ranked number 42, you can fight anybody pretty much from 41 on up. And it's kind of a good deal for you. You only stand to go up. If you're number three, you're kind of in a position where there's not too many people who make a whole lot of sense for you as an opponent. So that does kind of limit your options. I mean, though, I think everybody was making kind of a big deal about uh, Neil Magny's five times in one year thing. And that's good. You know, like you you win five fights in a row in the UFC, regardless of how long it takes you to do it. That's good. But then I think when you go and you look at, at who he's fought, it doesn't necessarily seem like, you know, he's rocketing up the ranks with these no. wins. They no, no. all seem like pretty much guys around kind of the same level. And he's just getting the opportunity to keep stepping in there and keep getting paid, which, you know, again, good for him. Good for him. Yeah. And a good year he's had. But at the same time, these win streaks are not created equal, man. Like, right. I know that only I think one other person ever in UFC history has won five fights in, in a, officially in a calendar year. Uh, but like you look at, at what Neil Magny's done this year and you look at what Donald Cerrone's done this year, like. Cerrone's only got four wins, but it's just a, like a far more impressive menu of fights than than what Neil Magny's had. So I hope that we don't, near the end of the year, get into a bunch of ridiculousness where people are running around trying to make Neil Magny out to be the fighter of the year, uh, because there are, there are several guys that that deserve the nod over him. You know, if if uh, if Robbie Lawler comes out and and walks away from his what December fight with Johnny Hendricks as the UFC welterweight champion. Uh, be pretty hard not to vote Robbie Lawler as the fighter of the year. And uh, if he loses that fight, you know, there's still a number of guys, including Donald Cerrone, who's got four wins this year, who have who have all done stuff that is more impressive than what Neil Magny has done. So, like, hey, I respect what the guy's done, but it's also prompted a lot of, like, kind of ridiculous talk. Yeah. Well, one thing I wanted to mention, I was talking to you about this a little bit beforehand. Uh, Friday night, I was out with my wife uh, at the up at the Hot Springs Resort, uh, hanging out in the bar. And mm-hmm, with all your swinger buddies. Yeah. Watch, us and all the swingers at uh, at the Hot Springs watching TV. 
and the sound was off. I think it was, you know, it had like the World Series game on and stuff. And I saw an ad come on Fox Sports 1 for the prelims uh, to this event, right? And since Fox only has interest in, you know, pumping up the prelims because that's the part that they broadcast, all the good stuff is on pay-per-view. It seems like, you know, and again, I'm kind of watching it in a bar, so maybe I'm not a total expert on this ad, but it's just like in big letters, like, Neil Magny, Saturday night. And it's like, if you didn't know better, you'd think like, okay, wait, so there's a UFC on Saturday night, and what it is is this guy, Neil Magny, like, there's two fights or something on, on Fox Sports 1, like, that's what I'm supposed to tune in for? Who the hell is Neil Magny? You know, it seems like it does really very little for them uh like if you're the UFC trying to use this partnership to promote your upcoming pay-per-view that same night uh, when, you know, the Fox Sports 1 people are like, all right, you're going to give us Neil Magny as the big, that's the big fight for the Fox Sports 1 prelims? All right, that's what we'll tell people and we'll see who's interested. Who is Neil Magny? He's the 2014 UFC Fighter of the Year, according to some people. (laughs) Next question comes to us from Rob Perry, who writes, With Joe Lozon being forced out of the ill-fated UFC 180 card, I feel enough is enough. enough. I'm a muscular skeletal therapist from Australia. That's made up. In in this email, muscular skeletal is one word. (laughs) Maybe in Australia. Uh, (laughs) And had the privilege of working with Extreme Couture from three mo- for three months in 2009, speaking with such fighters as Martin Campman and Jay Hyron. Uh, I was Huron, su- Huron whatever. I was surprised how they pretty much looked after themselves after practice, whether it was icing, massage, ice bath, etc. They pretty much just did what they felt was right. As a practitioner for 10 years, I know that most people are quite ignorant when it comes to their own bodies and what... Oh, man. Puberty joke. Uh, and what... <laughs> They are putting their bodies through on a daily basis. I'm sure fighters are no different. Is it time for the fighters, coaches, and managers to step up and start taking responsibility for the fighters they represent? Whenever there is an injury, not much blame gets put on the coaches, yet they are the ones pushing the fighters to the max every day. If coaches and managers started feeling pressure toward the health of their fighters, I think a lot more care would be taken and a lot less injuries would occur. Thoughts? Well, that's interesting, although I disagree that Coaches don't get much blame when fighters get injured. We do see that. Uh, We heard one dude get called a sport killer once, not necessarily because of the injury that happened to Dan Henderson, but because he advised John Jones not to take the take a fight on short notice. And then when John Jones did get hurt training with Alistair Overeem, then Dana White, who last I checked has trained zero world champions, uh, wanted to talk about how he doesn't think Greg Jackson knows what he's doing. You know, I mean, so that kind of stuff does happen, or we we hear like criticism of, of different camps or stuff like that. But I do think it's interesting, and I don't necessarily know if just like being meaner to coaches when their fighters get injured is the answer to this. It is, though, interesting that this is a different kind of sport and that the athletes are left to their own devices a lot more often, not just with like you know treating injuries and things like that, but it's just kind of a thing where are you going to show up to practice today? They don't always know. You know, If you spend any time in those gyms, they don't always know who's going to be there today. Everybody has to kind of be responsible for themselves, and it's so different from in the NFL where – you know, they have a entire staff of people for each team that are there just to treat your injuries and to map out a schedule for treating those injuries and getting you healthy again. With fighters, it's kind of like, hey, do you want to do an ice bath after practice? I don't know. I don't really feel like it. Yeah, and again, it comes back to the larger issue that these guys are independent contractors, not necessarily the employees of, like, the Denver Broncos who would ostensibly have a, a, a you know – 
medical staff and and physical therapists and uh, osteopaths like what Rory McDonald's got up there in Canada, uh, and, you know, to, to look after these guys. And, and I think that the emailer here makes a good point that a lot of times these guys are left on their own. And uh, maybe a lot of it, again, comes back to money. Like, yes. you know, the, the lowest people probably on the mixed martial arts payout totem pole are probably like the strength and conditioning coaches and like your massage therapist or whatever you have. Like there's just not a ton of money flying around for people to get, uh, the best possible sports medicine out there. You know, especially if you're a guy like Diego Sanchez and, or, uh, Joe Lozon, you know, both guys who have had pretty profitable careers, but are guys who are kind of maybe nearing the end of their, the end of their runs with the UFC. Like you could see those guys sitting down and being like, well, I could commit 10% of my purse to like bringing in, uh, this really good physical therapist, or I could just roll with my foam roller that I got at the at hey, champ sports. Those are good for you. I know they are like, but like I, I spent 40 bucks on this foam roller. Maybe that's all I need, you yeah. know, cause these guys aren't making millions of dollars anyway. Right. Well, and I mean, maybe though that's, that could be part of the motivation for the coaches. If you wanted to think of something that could convince coaches and, and trainers to get a little more proactive and making sure guys stay healthy, if that dude doesn't fight, you don't get paid most of the time. So maybe that could be the thing of, of why you want to keep your fighters healthy so that, you know, they can get in there and you can get your 10% at the end of the day. Yeah. And the financial relationship between fighters and the gyms that they train at is not always like totally clear cut. A lot of the time, like, who knows if if the manager or the like the the trainer gets paid if a dude doesn't have his fight? Yeah, I, you would think you'd have to be a pretty big dick to like be like, hey Joe. Uh, also about that ten percent, you still owe that to me, man. You still owe me that, even though you're not going to fight. Wait, you're saying that the coach would have to be a pretty big dick? Yeah, isn't you? that what I said? You, well, I, it was unclear, but yeah, no, you don't. If you're a coach and the dude doesn't fight, you don't get paid. That's that's my point. Is that there's another incentive for you to make sure the dude doesn't get hurt. The last question this week comes from Luke from Washington. He writes, instead of hoping you cover this whole tale of two weight cuts, uh, Dolce versus Penn story, I figured I would get proactive and bring it up. I'm genuinely torn on how to view what happened between Penn and Dolce, BJ Penn and Mike Dolce. On one hand, I want to believe Dolce due to his track record and plethora of fighter test testimonies to back him up and the UFC has turned him into their version of Gene Simmons. I don't know what that means. Uh, Richard Simmons? Yeah, Gene Simmons is the dude from Kiss. Yeah, right? Richard Simmons is a little exercise guy, right? Yeah, so unclear. I think it's that. Additionally, I think we've uh, heard how rigid Penn can be in his training, so this would give him an excuse we haven't heard before. Uh, one, or this is supposed to say, on the other hand, I have often wondered how someone with no formal training in a field mostly based on science uh, can become such an authority on the subject matter. In turn, I've been curious to see if there wasn't a few tricks up the old Dolce diet sleeve other than blueberries, bro science, his term, and earth-grown nutrients. I would enjoy hearing you two discuss and tell us what the hell is really going on. So yeah, Mike Dolce and BJ Penn have been back and forth in the social medias. Beefing. Uh, beefing, t Twitter beefing. And uh, last Rast I saw, uh, BJ Penn had threatened to knock him out the next time he sees him. So uh, it's not a game out there, man, in this <laughs> in this sports nutritional uh, dietary world. I would still think it was pretty awesome if like you know, there was a standing challenge from BJ Penn to knock me out on site. I mean, <laughs> even though I'd be a little kind of scared, I would still be like, that's right. 
I don't know. You guys are going to that bar? I don't know. I don't know if I should go there. BJ Penn might be there. I better lay low. Uh, it is interesting, though, because here I think that uh, Luke from Washington brings up the, the points on both sides, right? Because on one hand, there's BJ Penn's history of being a guy who – you know, doesn't have too much trouble finding fault after the fact with things that other people have done wrong. Uh, and maybe, especially if they help diminish the things that he might have done wrong, then uh, so be it. You know, he's kind of had that track record. So you could see him kind of seizing on some stuff uh, that it was, okay, it was Dolce's fault. Uh, Dolce did all this this stuff to screw me up. Uh, and then on the other hand, yeah, it is, you would think that uh, the sports like most well-known nutritionist and weight cutting guru would have a little bit more of like just actual physical credentials that he could point to. But then, you know, he's worked with so many different fighters who speak so highly of him. Like it's, it's relatively rare to have somebody not happy with their experience with Mike Dolce. Uh, you know, and it's usually the kind of people like BJ Penn or Rampage Jackson who just tend to be not happy with their experience with people in general. So that makes you wonder, right? Yeah. I think you're right about that, and and it is also right to say that Mike Dolce seems like kind of a uh, an unlikely guy to soar to the to the top of the weight cutting slash fighter diet industry, given that uh, he doesn't have really any medical training and and, and just kind of learned on the fly himself being a fighter and then transitioning into uh into this new uh, role for himself. Uh, but at the same time, we haven't heard that much negative stuff about him. Whereas the negative stuff about BJ Penn and his preparation is, is, you know, not hard to find at all. Still, it's a situation where we don't really know what the truth is. And uh, I feel like there's only one way to, to settle it. And it's the ultimate fighter season 21 Dolce versus Penn. What do you think? So they would be coaches. You're saying, sure. Why not? Or just have them fight. I don't care. <laughs> I feel like maybe you haven't thought this through all the way. It's the ultimate fighter, man. You don't have to think it through. Yeah, nobody's going to see it anyway. Put a a bunch of fighters in a warehouse and have them figure out what happens when people stop being polite and start being real. That's what it's all about, right? I'm sold. You got me. Anyway, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. We'll be back next week. Well, that's what I say at the end of the show. Uh, If you have a question or comment or a concern for the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You can go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. I should think about writing some of this stuff down you at some point. You feeling okay? You doing all right? I'm doing okay. You're not coming down with a touch of the Ebola, are you? No, it's just the ad-libs. Kind of this, the, the, the Off the top of the head seem to be coming a little slow this week. Uh, I'll be honest with you. You don't look great. Yeah? Yeah. I'm surprised to hear that. I, felt, I really feel like I look like a million bucks. Well, agree to disagree. All right, well, we'll settle it later in the show. As for right now, though, we're going to get started with round number one. Ben, Jose Aldo, and Chad Mendez got together again on Saturday at UFC 179, and it was pretty hard to argue with the results. The pay-per-view at large had been pretty tepid and slow, uh, the kind of thing that makes us wonder all over again exactly what the hell we're doing staying at home on Saturday nights to watch this. And then Jose Aldo and Chad Mendez come out there. They turned the whole thing around, man, uh, yeah. putting on a fight of the year contender 
brawl for five rounds that eventually went to what was a fairly clear cut decision for Jose Aldo. But Chad Mendez definitely, uh, came out there and gave mostly as good as he got and, and, and put on a tremendous show. Uh, so I imagine he's not hanging his head too much this week. At least I hope he's not. Uh, what were your impressions here? This, this one was a, a real crackerjack as far as I was concerned. It was. And, you know, this, I think my main takeaway, you were totally right to point out that it really saved uh, the card. Tepid is like actually the nicest thing I've heard anybody say about <laughs> the undercard to, to USC 179. I mean, it was, is one of those where, you could tell maybe the UFC is hoping like, yeah, there's not a whole lot of star power. Maybe the fights will turn out to be awesome and we can do that thing we do where we're like, don't you dare d- judge the fights before they happen unless you're judging them positively. Uh, but man, it was rough, rough going through, uh, the, pretty much the entire undercard there. Uh, and then you get to the top and you're thinking, please, let's hope this delivers. And boy, does it ever. I mean, the, the amazing thing to me was just how many swings the fight had in it and how, uh, the the pace never really slowed down. Reminds you again why featherweight seems like it could be the the future best, like just most reliably awesome weight class that the UFC has. Especially you look at all the names you have in there now, the potential title challengers coming up, and the fights that they're able to put on, the pace that they're able to keep. Kind of feels like featherweight might be the new lightweight. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I agree. Especially I think for 2015, uh, I thought whoever came out of this event with the 145 pound title was gonna inherit himself quite a high profile and potentially lucrative year because you know any way the UFC decides to play it you've got potentially title defense fights against the winner of Frankie Edgar and Cub Swanson uh maybe uh Conor McGregor by the middle of the year uh and then you still got Dennis Bermudez out there running around who uh I don't think we can overlook and if he wins another fight or two he'll he'll still be there waiting for Jose Aldo or whoever happens to be the champion by the end of the year but uh 2015 I think shapes up as a potential uh, breakout year for featherweight. And, uh, I thought this, this was a good performance for Jose Aldo just because of all the stuff that we, uh, talked about last week about how it seemed like he had the potential to be a superstar, but had, you know, been a little bit careful and maybe underwhelming in some of his, his previous appearances. Uh, this one at times, he definitely let it all hang out. Um, and, and it was a good performance for him. At the same time, I was reminded a little bit about how frustrating it is to watch him fight sometimes because even though this was a great fight and he put on a great performance, there was that one exchange down the stretch in the first round after the first time he got poked in the eye by Chad Mendez, uh, where it seemed like Jose Aldo got mad, real mad. <laughs> yes. And for like a minute there, he is the most terrifying one of them. He's as terrifying as anyone on the planet. Yeah. Period. There was, when he, he has an additional gear he can go to. And when he goes there, it is frightening. Yeah, it is. And I feel like that's how he used to fight in the WEC all the time. And for various reasons, competition, he's the champ now, UFC, larger stage, etc. You know, he tones it down a lot this time, but knowing that he has that additional gear that he can go to, that's impressive, man, because it looked like, you know, Chad Mendez is, is, I think we can all agree, the second best featherweight in the world right now at this point. But, like, he looked like he was about to get knocked the fuck out yeah. at the end of the first round. And, frankly, did after the bell. Got hit pretty hard after yeah, the bell. Yeah, he did. Well, you know, I was noticing that, too, where you could see a couple moments where Jose Aldo got a little worked up and was like, okay, here you go. Three-punch combination is just going to kind of rock you every single which way. And I wonder why he doesn't do that more often. 
I wonder if it's that he's concerned about his cardio. Yeah, that, that if he could just be. doesn't feel like he has that much in the tank that he can afford to do that that often. Especially, you know, if you if you go all out there and you don't put the guy away, a guy like Chad Mendes is somebody who can really take advantage of you if he sees that you're tired. Uh, that's what he wants. You know, if you're Jose Aldo, you got to know that pretty much everybody who comes in to fight you at this point, somewhere in their game plan is get him tired, wear him down, and beat him in the later rounds. Because there are not too many people going in there being like, I know, I'll just be faster than him. Like, I'll just be sharper and more technical in the striking exchanges, and that's how I'll beat him. Like, that's just not really in most people's uh, arsenal for that guy, I think. So I wonder how much of that is, you know, maybe he's he's had that experience before of tiring out in fights, and it's an awful feeling, and he doesn't want to go there again, so he kind of has to... Uh, remind himself to 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 pace his his efforts there. You, you mentioned the late punch there. Yeah, okay. after the bell in the first round, looked pretty bad. It did. Uh, and then afterwards, hearing you know both uh, referee Mark Goddard and and Jose Aldo, everybody kind of saying, well, it was super loud in there. We couldn't. We didn't hear the ten second clacker. We didn't hear the horn. All that kind of stuff. Uh, and so, hey, what do we know? All right, you know, it didn't seem super loud on TV, but they, you can never really tell for sure. Hearing enough different people say that, I was more inclined to believe it because at the time, it seemed bad, man. I mean, he landed two punches after the bell. Uh, the last one, that right hand that dropped Mendez, you know, he threw that one clearly after the horn had already sounded. So, uh, it seemed maybe worse than it was when you kind of take into account, account, uh, environmental factors, I'll say. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to make a big conspiracy out of it. It seemed like I was hoping uh, you would. Oh, nailed it on Mark Mark Goddard's name, by the way, back there. What what did I say? Goddard. <laughs> That's close enough. Yeah, whatever. Uh, Jay Huron. I, I wasn't going to – if it was a conspiracy, they definitely got everyone on the same page uh, pretty fast because it seemed like almost unilateral agreement after the fight that it was super loud in there and, and, and no one could hear the horn. Uh, maybe, though, that this is a good a ch- as good a time as any to segue into a discussion about all the damn fouls in this fight uh, because there was, what, two eye pokes, a groin strike, a punch after the bell uh, – and all that that came of any of it was one kind of stern warning yeah. uh, from the referee mid- A little bit of midway voter through. fraud, probably. Yeah. Uh, right turn on a, on a red light when there's a sign that says you can't do that. All that stuff. I mean, okay, the the eye pokes, Chad Mendes is clearly just kind of putting his hand out there in, in a way that's – you know, that's going to lead to some eye pokes. Yeah. I think the, the groin strike one was maybe one where he caught kind of a raw deal because he's trying to throw a knee. Uh, he's, he's trying to hold the guy's head and throw a knee at him. And Aldo pushes him back as he's throwing the knee. And so just kind of like naturally his, his foot comes up and hits the dude in the groin. That one I don't feel like you can complain too much about. Uh, it did though start to take on kind of just a, a street fight feel to it. Maybe somewhere around the time where Chad Mendez is doing the old foot stomps thing. Oh, yeah. The Chris Lieben foot stomps. Yeah, Everybody likes to see those, man. Everybody likes it when those come out. You know, I was, I went back and I was rewatching the fight the next morning to kind of get a better idea of who won which rounds to see, you know, if it was closer than I thought it was or anything. Because uh, watching it, I thought Aldo pretty clearly won that. And I was a little surprised maybe that Mendez didn't go for broke more in the fifth round. And he seemed like he thought maybe he'd won that decision. Uh, and watching it again just, you know, made me think of anything that Aldo won the decision more clearly. But I was watching the, the kind of foot stomps part in the fight, and it seemed like Aldo was pretty tired there, and he's just going to kind of wait that one out. And Chad Mendez is kind of like he can't 
can't quite believe the guy's just going to stand there and let him keep foot stomping him like this. And at one point, he goes for the foot stomp and misses. Just misses the foot entirely. And that's where, like, if you're Jose Aldo, I guess you feel like, all right, I guess I guess I don't really have anything to worry about too much from these foot stomps. I can wait this one out. Uh, and again, I think it just goes to to underscore the fact that if nothing's going to happen to you when you break the rules, you might as well stick your fingers out sure. there, man. Poke the other guy in the eye. If nothing's going to happen, why wouldn't you? You get two free ones. Uh, so Jose Aldo walks away from this, still has the title, defeats Chad Mendez, who I think uh, certainly came out and put on the best wire-to-wire challenge that we've seen uh, Jose Aldo take up to this point. Uh, we talked about this a little bit earlier, the listener mail, when we had the question about Conor McGregor, but like, what's the right move here, man? Like, I feel as a fan... Uh, and, and a fan that wants to see the best fighters in the world fight the, for the title, I'm still very much in favor of uh, Frankie Edgar or Cub Swanson getting a rematch against Jose Aldo, especially if it's Cub Swanson who got defeated so uh, quickly back in the WEC that we never even really got to see what he's capable of, uh, and he's looked so good recently. And his striking style, I feel like, would create a, a complimentary and good fight for Jose Aldo. Uh, but at the same time, from a promotional standpoint, if I was going to make any money off this, I understand why you might think about Conor McGregor. Yeah, well, I think you kind of hit it on the head there when you said that the winner of the Cub Swanson fight, Frankie Edgar fight, especially if it's Cub Swanson. Because I feel like if it's Frankie Edgar, we still have the the memory of that fight that wasn't terribly interesting and wasn't terribly competitive. That one's still kind of fresh in our minds. And I mean, it sounds counterintuitive because you'd say, hey, the dude who got knocked out in eight seconds should probably, you know, he his competitive problem there is is much greater than the dude who lost a decision but i feel like like you said maybe that just feels like enough has changed uh with cub swanson and that we didn't get to see much of him then uh and that it was back at wec aldo who was uh, way more dangerous than uh what we've seen a lot of times from the the ufc aldo so it does seem like you can talk yourself into that one a little more i wouldn't be surprised if if it turns out to be frankie edgar if that changes the ufc's thinking as far as where everybody stands in the featherweight division i mean you mentioned dennis bermudez before i don't think you can forget about him yeah if anyone thing it seems like he's going to get the short end because uh he seems to be last in line i think in the at least in terms of conventional wisdom about who's going to get the next title shot um as far as chad mendez goes i kind of hate to say it but is he in sort of a like unenviable position now having lost twice to jose aldo uh you know maybe it's not quite the same weird creek that junior dos santos finds himself up because uh you know heavyweight there's a lot less talent or a lot, it's a lot of shallower of a talent pool, I think, than what you have at featherweight right now. But having lost twice as a champ, man, it's, it's kind of a weird position for Chad Mendes to be in. Although maybe you just hang back and, and wait to see who are the losers in the Frankie Edgar, Conor McGregor, Dennis Bermudez sweepstakes and try to pick those guys off. Yeah. And, you know, I think when it, if anything, it does help you that the second fight was close and the toughest test we've seen for Jose Aldo in the UFC, like all that stuff makes you think that, uh, okay, if you hang around, you knock some people out, uh, really put on some strong performances and you kind of wait this, this cycle out. Uh, Conor McGregor gets his shot, uh, Cub Swanson, maybe Dennis Bermudez, all those guys get to go through. And then when they come back around, Hey, it's Chad Mendez wants to do the trilogy. The last one was a hell of a lot of fun. And anyway, if they don't have any better ideas by then, you know, you might get another opportunity at it. I guess, though, what I would wonder is, is there any reason to think that a third fight would go necessarily any better for Chad Mendez? Because I thought, you know, Chad Mendez looked really good, the best, you know, maybe we've seen him look and did all the things you'd like to think that uh, Chad Mendez should do in a fight with Josie Aldo and still lost. 
Yeah. You know, like a really improved Chad Mendes and still not improved enough. Yeah, your best case scenario if you're Chad Mendes is to probably hope that Jose Aldo can't emerge from this murderer's row of challengers with the title. Because if somebody else wins it, that definitely like reinvigorates things for Chad Mendes. Or maybe you hope Aldo stomps through all of them and then goes up to 155 to try to fight Anthony Pettis or ever, who, whoever is the champ, you know, by the end of the year, or early 2016. Or you uh, hope for a motorcycle accident. <laughs> which, uh, coming up in round three, that could happen. Uh, let's do, uh, uh, are you fucking kidding me? And then we'll move on to, uh, to round number two. Uh, Ben, I just want to, by way of, are you fucking kidding me this week? I just want to read you a quote, uh, from Nevada State Athletic Commission, Commissioner, uh, Anthony Marnell that you might remember from a few months ago, uh, when Vitor Belfort showed up to try to get a license, uh, Commissioner Marnell said, I'll give you my definition of reasonable testing going forward for the, from this commission's perspective. We're going to test, we're going to drug test you to the day you retire. That's my definition of reasonable. We, in my opinion, should be in and around your career until the day you call it quits. Come to turn out, the Nevada State Athletic Commission hasn't tested the incredible shrinking Vitor Belfort one time in the interim between this uh, licensing meeting, and now Belfort's fight against Chris Weidman being tentatively scheduled to actually happen in California. Uh, so frankly, are you fucking kidding me? Uh, everyone thought Vitor Belfort was going to get the shit tested out of him, especially Chris Weidman, who, who went on Twitter after this happened to uh, voice his disbelief. Uh, turns out maybe they were just, just bullshitting. Is it possible that when they said to the day you retire, they thought, well, maybe Vitor will fight for 30 more years and so we should pace ourselves? That's Yeah, maybe that's possible. Yeah. Fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Ben, what's your are you fucking kidding me well, for this week? Chad, I know you didn't see it because you don't watch the old fight pass. But, nope. uh, you know, when you're sitting there and you're watching fight pass in between fights on the prelims and you see the ads for the upcoming fight night events uh, and when the UFC shows them kind of back to back which I would recommend they not do unless they're going to put a little more effort into them, you really get a sense of how similar they are and how it's basically just kind of a paint-by-numbers for the the video production team there when they're putting together these ads, whether it's you know the, the UFC fight night with Rockhold and Bisping, the UFC fight night with Shogun and uh, Jimmy Manoa. It's basically show a few scenes of guys punch each other in the face, decontextualize sound bites that are probably about other people, uh, where Joe Rogan goes, whoa, and Mike Goldberg goes, that is amazing. Uh, show that one blonde woman in the crowd kind of doing a slow motion Arsenio Hall uh, fist bump there kind of th- kind of motion. Uh, and uh, then, you know, call it a day. Wrap it right up. Uh, basically, the video production team for the UFC is pretty much telling us, man, we can't even keep this shit straight anymore. It's all the same to us, too, you guys. Fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? We're just giving up here? Well, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, after winning a unanimous decision over Glover Teixeira, Phil Davis got on the mic and let everyone know that he wants to fight the greatest from another weight class from a few years ago who already has another fight booked. What's going on here, man? Phil Davis gets on there and says, you know who I want to fight? 
Anderson Silva and everybody, including Anderson Silva, just kind of makes a face like, wait, what? What what are you saying right now, Phil Davis? I mean, am I the only one who thinks that this makes absolutely no sense and really makes me wonder what Phil Davis is trying to accomplish here and if he thinks that it reads the same way that we think it does? No, you're not. In fact, if you didn't feel that way, I would I would be concerned for you because I think that's what we all think. This was a situation uh, almost all the way around, both in terms of how the fight went for Phil Davis and then how the post-fight interview went for Phil Davis that I feel like looked a lot better on paper than it actually felt in real life. Because you think to yourself, oh, Phil Davis comes out, gets a much-needed win over Glover Tashira to distance himself from this disastrous loss that he'd had to Anthony Johnson back in April, kind of reestablishes himself as a guy who needs to be in the conversation at light heavyweight, then jumps on the mic with some of his prepared material and calls out the greatest MMA fighter of all time for, you know, what could be an enormous payday uh, for everyone involved, I guess it especially Phil Davis. Hashtag uh, zip zap. Hashtag zip zap indeed. In practice, though, man, this thing just fell on its face, especially the uh, Passenger 57 reference. Uh, that was which the best part about it, man. I felt like that was extremely reminiscent of Paul Buentello trying to drop his catchphrase after that one fight when the crowd just totally left him hanging. Uh, and then you're right to say that the call out of Anderson Silver, Silva was such a non sequitur and just like out of the blue and such a complete departure from reality and a complete departure from anything that could conceivably happen that, uh, it, it was just such a waste for Phil Davis, man. If you, if, if you wanted to, to call somebody out, you could certainly get on the mic and call out Alexander Gustafson, a guy who you have already beat, but who has since leapfrogged you in the light heavyweight rankings. You could get on the mic and call out Rashad Evans, who already go. beat you, but is about to return from injury. Uh, you could get on the mic and ask for a rematch with Anthony Johnson, who's now on indefinite suspension and could be at loose ends by the time he comes back. Like There were just so many other better options for Phil Davis here that it made no sense to well, try to call out Anderson Silva. Or, as I mentioned in a video I did on the topic, you want to look outside the division? I can kind of see that because, like you said, you know, you got these other guys. Gustafson became a training partner afterwards, maybe still considers them friends and they won't fight. Uh, Rashad Evans, you know, is looking at uh, other fights, probably does not. Probably be hard to talk Rashad Evans into wanting to fight Phil Davis right now uh, since he already beat him. So, you, you know, he has that problem we mentioned where he's close enough to the top that there aren't a whole lot of options ahead of him that, that aren't already booked, even though he didn't seem to mind that Anderson Silva was already booked. But, hey, you want to look outside the division? Look up, man. Look up and challenge a heavyweight. Then we'll be like, all right, I hear what you're saying, Phil Davis. Mm-hmm. Phil, Phil, Phil Davis is, uh, you know going out there and, and sticking his finger in somebody's chest and taking a risk. But if you if you call out Anderson Silva, especially right now, you know, a nearly 40-year-old middleweight, it seems like you're looking around for a guy where, you know, you like the style matchup, you feel like he's not the guy he used to be, but it's still a big enough name that you can get a little bit of it to rub off on you if you just go in there and single leg the hell out of the guy for a few rounds and hold him there. You feel like, you know, you're going to get that that luster to rub off uh, and it's not going to be that challenging of a fight. Like, that's what it feels like. It feels like a, like a, just a little bit too shrewd of a tactical move, like looking for a fight that sounds tougher than it, it really would be for you right now. Uh, and people don't really respect that. If they, you know, if you go out there and you call out Junior Dos Santos, people are like, shit, all right. All right, Phil Davis, you're kind of crazy, but I like it. You know, you call out Anderson Silva, everybody's just like, wait, what? You, yeah. 
do you not follow the news? <laughs> well, and if I had to guess, I would say what I think is going on here is that Phil Davis is maybe trying to respond to some of the criticism lobbed at him by Dana White uh, back in April prior to the Anthony Johnson fight, where Dana White pretty much came out and said, uh, you know, Phil Davis is one of the best light heavyweights in the world, but he kind of needs to break out of like this laid back kind of mental slump or attitude that he has uh, because he doesn't seem like a guy who really wants it, which was I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but that was sort of the Pretty gist, damn close. the gist of what uh, Dana White said. I think there was a few more fucks in there uh, from the UFC president. But um, and so I think, you know, Phil Davis wanted to show that he had some fire and he was going to come out there and like. Tear, tear the house down with his post-fight interview and call out the greatest of all time, et cetera, et cetera. But like, you know, it was just so weird and, and out of left field. And the idea that fighting Phil Davis would be even what Anderson Silva is about right now <laughs> when like he's he's already booked for this comeback fight, a high profile comeback fight against a welterweight like and Anderson Silva is not going up in weight to fight the top one, two, three light heavyweights in the world right now. He just wants to get paid, make some money. And, and like maybe fight Chris Weidman again or something, but, uh, not Phil Davis, man. Is also, I mean, you know, the only way you could make this work if you're Phil Davis is if you try to trump up some strong personal reason why you need to fight Anderson Silva. That like, I was at this fan Q&A once and I saw Anderson <laughs> Silva slap the, the Zients out of some poor orphan's hand, uh, and, uh, karate chop an old lady in the throat. Uh, and then yell, I'm Anderson Silva, bitch, and jump in a, his Bentley and zoom off. And I was like, you know what? That's wrong. That's wrong. <laughs> I don't, I'm going to take a stand here and I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to be the dude who stands up for the orphans and the old ladies out there. And I, I'm going to put a beating on this man, uh, to let him know that you can't act like that. Uh, then, okay, may, you know, still a long shot, but at least then we're like, we see where you're coming from and we appreciate that. Uh, but instead, his his reasoning is like, well, people have been calling me the Brazilian killer, which, by the way, who? Who has been calling you He that? said people were saying that to him at the open workouts. I mean, but when he said that, for it. When he said that in the cage to Brian Stan, I think everyone at home was like, no, they don't. <laughs> Not, I mean, like, he has beat, like, when you look at his record, he has beat a, a fair number of Brazilians. Uh, I wouldn't say he's killed any of them uh, or even really come close. I mean, you know, he, he out-wrassled he out them uh, and did that pretty convincingly to Glover Teixeira, but... You know, let's not let's not trump that up and make it more than it is. So it just feels like his reasoning for wanting to do it. And then when you throw out the like, tell me what you think about it. Hashtag zips. It seems like a, the old, you know, website move where like, here's how we'll generate a lot more interest in this article. We'll just we'll end it by just asking a question about like, do you agree? Tell us in the comments section kind of thing. Like where you're just like it feels like you're trying to get engagement for engagement's right. sake. Right. Uh, well, I guess for the last couple of minutes here, we should spend some time talking about the actual fight. Like I said, the kind of thing that kind of looked better on paper than it felt in real life. Phil Davis did wear Glover Tashira around the ring like a button uh, on Saturday night, which is a good win for him. Can't you know really take anything away from him because of that. But at the same time, once it was all over, it did necessarily feel feel like he had told us anything about himself that we didn't already know we already knew that he's a tremendous wrestler and in fights where he can go out there and uh, uh, use his grappling skills effectively he normally wins those fights and uh, he was certainly able to do that uh, to to high you know, success against Glover Deshira, in fact, made it look like a college wrestling match. In fact, it looked like Glover Deshira was maybe on the junior varsity and, and he was just around to uh, make Phil Davis look good. Did you uh, think that maybe uh, Glover Teixeira looked like 
he just wasn't all there for this fight. It, I had seen some people question whether or not he was injured or like this, you know, there's just something off about Moved him. His training camp, but I believe. He, yeah, to his house, which is never really a good idea as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but like, like Mark uh, Coleman getting up. <laughs> you know, do, well, let's do not let's not go straight commercials. Hammer House here. Like, we, let's give Glover to share a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. But, oh, better get up and do some burpees here before the, the game comes back on. But yeah, he didn't. He looked glacial glacially slow just and frankly unprepared for whatever Phil Davis was going to bring to him which I kind of had to wonder about in the pre-fight when they talked about how Glover DeShira had been working out with Steve Mako uh, former multiple time I believe national wrestling champion uh, at Iowa and then I think later at at uh, Oklahoma State but uh, you know Steve Mako is a heavyweight and if you've ever seen him not a Phil Davis type individual you might say uh, but yeah uh Phil Davis beats beats up Glover Teixeira pretty succinctly, uh, but at the same time, I don't know, man. I don't know if he got much much of a push out of this one. No, I, I can't say that he did. I mean, it, I guess one of the things that I think that was a little troubling to see in this fight was whenever it stayed on the feet, it just feels like Phil Davis is not really trying to do a whole lot with his strikes other than use them to set up a takedown. Like, you just see him throwing punches, and he looks like he's just kind of pushing them out there. Like, he's not really hurting anybody with them. And right now in this division, you know, if if you're going to be the dude who is the wrestler guy who doesn't have much of a striking game, then you have to be a fantastic wrestler because you look at who else is in that division. You know, I mean, you're going to tell me you're going to go out there and just out-wrestle? You're just going to single-leg the hell out of Daniel Cormier or something? No, not bloody likely, my friend. you got to have... Uh, the full complement uh, to compete in that division right now, and it just doesn't seem like he has it. Yeah, his—I mean, certainly his stand-up game is is very much a work in progress, uh, which is, um, you know, kind of disappointing to say, considering that he's like a dozen fights deep in his UFC career and yeah, he's that's 30 thing, years right? old and he was a guy that we looked at a few years ago and, and thought that uh you know he could really be someone to challenge for the title and it just kind of seems like uh it hasn't all come together for him uh in the way that maybe we expected it to come together but again I think that that just points out man that like just because the guys come from these uh you know high level wrestling backgrounds and and use that as a foundation for their for their MMA careers that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be you know world beaters that's true that's true well what, what do you think let's we got to wrap this up pretty soon here but like uh what what does happen to Phil Davis now man you know he calls out Anderson Silva uh he's right now he's number 6 in the official UFC top 10 that I'm looking at um but it's hard to really come up with a with a good fight for him, you know, in the top five, especially if Alexander Gustafson's going to fight Rashad Evans in January. Uh, maybe try to get the winner of that, uh, or think about you know going down and fighting somebody like Ryan Bader or Dan Henderson uh, uh, or Shogun Hua OSP. Don't, do, don't like, do that to Dan Henderson. Come on, man. I'm don't. just I'm just I'm telling you I'm reading the names. Don't there's, you? Don't there's you not even... a ton of uh, here's the guys above Phil Davis: Alexander Gustafson, Daniel Cormier, Rashad Evans, Glover Deshira, Anthony Johnson. And of course, John Jones, the champion. You know, you know what his best bet is right now? Stay healthy, stay in shape, uh, and wait for the injury bug to create an opportunity for you. Uh, regardless of where it is, you know, that's, I would think the, the best thing, the best career advice you could give for Phil Davis right now is don't get too far off of weight. Uh, make sure you stay in the gym and stay ready. Stay by that phone because you never know what could happen there. Well, speaking of the injury bug, oh, brother, round number three, that starts right now.
Well, Ben, like I said at the top of the show, I'm kind of glad that this is the super spooky Halloween episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast because we get the chance to talk about one of my favorite scary topics in mixed martial arts, and that is the fact that I've been saying and writing for years that the UFC Heavyweight Championship is cursed. And at this point, I don't even know how you could disagree with me, man. Yeah, it's basically like that uh, amulet from the Brady Bunch that they find in the cave while they're on vacation in Hawaii. Yeah. You think you want it. You think that this is a, a prize that you want to carry around with you, but you don't. It's like the blacksmith shop that forged the UFC championship belt was maybe built on top of a an ancient Aztec burial ground or yeah. something. Because something weird is going on with the UFC heavyweight championship, and it has been for years, you know? Uh, Boss Rutan wins a thing and, and has so many injuries that he pretty much has to retire from the sport. Tim Sylvia wins a thing, immediately gets his damn arm broke by Frank Mir, who then goes out and gets hit by a car when he is the UFC heavyweight champion. And then Tim Sylvia goes on blind date and embarrasses himself. Right. Uh, Don't forget that. I wouldn't forget that. Kevin Randleman slips on some pipes in the back and falls down. Uh, the, the largest, scariest human being in the world, Brock Lesnar, is just tearing people's heads off. And then he wins the UFC Heavyweight Championship, and like a foot of his guts falls out. <laughs> like, I it seems like to me like the worst thing that could possibly happen to someone is that they win the UFC Heavyweight Championship, which has now happened to Cain Velasquez, who uh, I think we can all agree had the skills to potentially be the best, most dominant heavyweight in UFC history and has now, I think, hurt every part of his body. And uh, how about his coccyx at 32 years? Oh, old, dude, the right. family show <laughs> trying to do a family show here, man. Uh at 32 years old now, I think, uh, runs the risk of being like kind of a, like, I don't want to, I don't know if you'd say cautionary tale, but like kind of a coulda, woulda, shoulda situation for Cain Velasquez. Man, you hope it doesn't end up like that, right? Like you hope that he can come back, get healthy, stay healthy, uh, and really fulfill that promise. Because like you said, you look at him, he's the guy you hear every other fighter talk about, like, hey, you know, that might be, uh, one of the best pure fighters in the world, one of the, 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 the champion that's just so far ahead of everybody else uh, in his division. It'd be a real shame if that was just, you know, basically training injuries that, that were his undoing, uh, especially because, man, the heavyweight division needs somebody to hold on to that belt and just bring a little stability to the top. Not to mention he's one of the spring chickens in this division, man. Yeah, everybody like, else is 40 years old. At, what is he, 32? 32 years old. Yeah. You know, but 50, like in injury years at this point, because he's, I think what he's had a, a shoulder, a knee. He hurt his hand, I think, at one point. Didn't he hurt his neck? Like, I don't, I mean, he's every the, part of his body. There's somebody out there with a Cain Velasquez voodoo doll, yeah. man. <laughs> no, it's like, yeah, the worst thing could happen to you, it seems at this point, is not only do you get the, the UFC title, and then they put you on the cover of Madden or something, and then, uh, then they, put, then they take a picture of, of that, put it on Sports Illustrated. Dennis Stoinick has a Cain Velasquez voodoo doll. <laughs> Owing to his second round TKO victory back in February 2009. Well, I wondered when I first heard this news that he was pulling out was, uh, did Cain Velasquez maybe learn a hard lesson from that first fight with Junior Dos Santos where he got knocked out? Because if you'll recall, that was the one that was on Fox, the first fight they ever did on Fox. They just did the one heavyweight championship and it was, you know, a huge deal. 10 million people watched, whatever. Uh, and he got knocked out in the first round. And afterwards, we heard that they both had knee injuries going into that one. And that Cain Velasquez's was maybe more serious than he let on. And, uh, but 
the pressure was on there. You can't pull out of that fight when the UFC has so much riding on it, so much uh, that they're hoping to do on Fox there with just that one fight. What are you going to do? So maybe he was pressured to go through with it. Then he gets knocked out. Maybe he tells himself, never again. I will never uh, put the, the title on the line like that if I'm not 100% ready. And then something like this happens and he decides to pull out again. You, you think that that could have played a part? Yeah, it's it's possible, especially heading into about against Fabricio Verdun, who's been on a tear uh, you know, since coming over from Strike Force with wins over Travis Brown and, and Big Nog and Roy Nelson all, all on his resume and a guy who was expected to, uh, if nothing else, put up a stiff challenge, uh, to, to Cain Velasquez. You know, we talked a little bit about this at the beginning of the show, but just given that 2014 has, has been the so-called year of the injury, um, just a couple of years removed from when 2012 was the year of the injury, uh, and these guys just continue kind of dropping like flies around us, at some point, does the sport and industry at large have to take a real hard look at, at how these guys train? Is that even, can you even do that? Like, is there, is there another option out there for uh, a kind of preparation that might be less strenuous or less damaging to the body? Yeah. I mean, I guess you'd figure that it would be at some point, like it's got to correct itself, right? If, if there is, if it is possible for you to get the same benefit out of some training without pushing yourself so hard that you're injuring yourself, because in this business, you know, you're just not going to make any damn money if you don't get in there and fight. Like, it doesn't matter if you have the title. Like, that's how you, you, you get that, that money that allows you to then get out of this crazy sport is you have to get in there and you have to actually do the fights. And if you get too hurt for that, doesn't matter how good you are or what position that you had occupied before that. Like it's in your best interest to figure out a way to get the, the best training you can without putting yourself at undue risk. I mean, some of it though, like this sport, like the, like a sport where you have to, regularly put on gloves and headgear and beat each other up but you also have to do a hell of a lot of wrestling which just is a pounding on your your knees and your your joints i mean it seems like some of that's always going to be a part of it right like there's just like the kind of freak nature of stuff that can happen there like everybody has their theories about what causes it dana white thinks that people just need to have these boxing style camps where they bring in a bunch of training partners of course he doesn't want to pay them the kind of money that would allow them to do that sort of thing so that's why this this camp style keeps proliferating um, and other people say like oh you know they're just training too hard or they're not doing ice baths enough afterward or something i mean i think that we're all just we're looking for a reason but we don't know i mean we're we're looking for a reason because we want to believe it's not just the nature of the sport that's injuring people. And that could very well be it. I mean, I'm sure you could do it smarter. You could minimize some risks somehow. And I'm sure that the longer people do it, uh, the more they'll, they'll come around to that idea. But some of this is just the human body, uh, is not necessarily made to be beating the shit out of each other all the time. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't think they have a problem that is quite as widespread injury wise in boxing. And obviously, a lot of these injuries happen in the grappling phase, but I don't know that they have all these injuries in in amateur wrestling either. Like I, I don't know at all the, anything about I don't know. Uh, you the practice some... habits of amateur wrestling, but it seems like those guys have to go out there and perform a lot more often than than MMA fighters. So I don't I don't know if they're doing different stuff or, or they have different techniques, different ways of training. But but uh, it just seems like this sport, for whatever reason, is is really hard hit by injuries. And and at this point. I think it would behoove someone uh, who knows more about it than I do to get to get into some research, man, and figure out 
what's happening, why this is happening, and maybe uh, look at camps where this isn't happening as much. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, as far as wrestling goes, if you t- if you talk to some 32-year-old wrestlers and the ones who have been at it because, you know, they're on the, the international circuit and that kind of stuff, they'll tell you that their joints are pretty messed up too. Their, their knees are pretty banged up from all the years of that. I mean, maybe some part of it is that uh, when people are doing most of their wrestling, it's like high school and college and a little bit after college. And so you don't quite see the, the toll that uh, a lifetime of that takes on you. I think another thing of it is that they just do it hurt more often. Like that they, they are hurt, but they go out there because, you know, hell, we got to meet against Iowa this weekend and got to do it. Whereas when you're a professional and there's money on the line and you go out there and you're, if you're hurt and you get knocked out in the first round and nobody want to hear it, man. Nobody wants to hear you. How about how you push through this knee injury? Everybody just assumes that you're making excuses. You go home with half as much money as you would have got if you won. You lose your title, which was your key to getting points on the pay per view. Uh, you know, I think that there's also a little bit of that calculus going on of people looking at what am I risking and, and what's the reward and am I in a position to risk it right now? And you can't really blame them if sometimes they decide, you know what, better to wait on this one. Although, man, can you imagine the the just pregnant silence on the other end of the phone when you had to call the UFC and say, Cain Velasquez isn't going to make it to Mexico City. Man, they were really planning on that one. Yeah, that's what you got your manager for right there. Uh, so we just got a couple minutes here, but we should wrap up. But uh, Mark Hunt versus Fabricio Verdum. Any reason to think that this doesn't just go as a walk in the park for, for Fabry? Man, I don't know if anybody can stand across from Mark Hunt and expect it to be a walk in the park. That dude can always hit you and and turn your world upside down. Also, Fabricio Verdum, I don't know if he's exactly known for uh, his brilliant takedowns. And he has kind of, like, if there's a, a recipe for Mark Hunt to come out of nowhere and become a UFC interim champion, this is it, right? Like, Fabricio Verdum, a guy who was planning for somebody else, uh, a guy who has kind of fallen in love with his improved stand-up in recent years, a guy who doesn't have, who has a good ground game but doesn't have the greatest takedowns, uh, goes in there against Mark Hunt, maybe tries to, to get his kickboxing on and showboat a little bit like he did against Travis Brown, uh, and then gets hit with one of those bungalows from Mark Hunt that's just a world-ender for a lot of people. Next thing you know, maybe the horsey man's face down on the canvas, and Mark Hunt is is trying to figure out how to fit that belt around his damn waist, man. Oh, did you just call the go horse Fabricio Verdum the horsey man? That's right. That's you awesome. Come on, uh, uh, but, well, hey, oh, man, it would be if, kind of awesome if Mark Hunt turned out to be interim champion, wouldn't it? I think we can agree that either of these guys will make a fine interim champion, but if Fabricio Verdum is planning on going out there and, quote-unquote, messing around in the stand-up with Mark Hunt, dude, Fab, give me a call. Man, because uh, I'm not a professional MMA trainer, but I got a strategy for you that I want to talk about. Um, Low single. <laughs> uh, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week. We're not going to do just, just saying stuff, huh? You're Jesus just Christ. Right over I'm that. just like, not having a great week here with the set pieces. The Ebola. It's got to be that Ebola I'm coming down with. You look worse like than you did at the beginning of the show. All right, Ben. Because you insist on doing it. What's your just saying stuff for this week? Well, Chad, I'm sure, I'm sure that you saw the photos of Randy Couture's Halloween costume this year. Getting it made into a poster as we speak. Randy Couture dressed up as old rival Chuck the Iceman Liddell. Even got a little help from Liddell and getting the shorts and everything to complete the costume. Might have gone a little overboard with the mohawk, but you know, you want to make sure it reads from across the room at a party. Uh, I get that. Uh, 
a couple just saying stuff about that. A, it's awesome. Uh, B, seemed like maybe Randy Couture had to let himself go a little bit to get enough of a of a gut to really pull off a convincing Chuck Liddell. Yeah, this is early career Liddell, not showing up to fight Rich Franklin looking looking like he's twenty five years old. Chuck Liddell. I don't know what you're implying there, uh, but. That's also awesome because especially the Randy Couture of five years ago with his like eight pack abs uh, <laughs> might not have been a convincing Chuck Liddell. But finally, I'm just saying I really hope this becomes a trend among MMA fighters to dress up as other MMA fighters who possibly they've had memorable rivalry with over the years for Halloween because that could get real interesting real fast until somebody's feelings inevitably get hurt. Which would still be a lot of fun. I'm just saying. Just saying. Seemed like Randy's girlfriend. uh uh didn't exactly go overboard with her costume idea, what with dressing, it appeared as like a ring card girl. Not terribly creative on her part, no. Yeah. Well, Ben, I assume that this week you heard that Anderson Silva canceled his existing contract with the UFC so that he could re-up on a new 15-fight deal over the weekend. That's a lot of fights. I'm just saying you can never be too careful, man. I mean, Anderson Silva, uh, you know, he's he said he only had seven fights left on his previous contract. So clearly he's just a young guy looking for a little bit of security. You know, he's only had 18 fights in the UFC so far. So he's probably about half done. Right. Just going to go ahead and plan for the second half of his career, like all of us looking down the road, wondering, man, what's my contract situation going to be like as a professional fighter when I'm 48, 49 years old? Just saying. Just saying. Can never be too careful, man. 62-year-old Anderson Silva still trying to finish up that contract so he can go be a Bellator brand ambassador. (laughs) Just got to lock that down, man. Some security. (laughs) You only got seven fights left. It's time to (laughs) re-up. Anyway, that is going to do it for the co-main event podcast this week. We'll be back next week uh, to look ahead to some other fights. There's got to be some, right? We're coming right up on some something. Yeah. yeah. We'll look at the calendar. We'll, we'll do, figure we'll it do out. That. Yeah. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. So you thinking uh, going straight to the emergency room after this is over? Yeah, I'm starting to feel a little feverish. feel yeah. like I should get into isolation. Yeah. You know, it's going to be kind of embarrassing for you, though, when they ask you. Don't remember, but I've had unprotected sex with a lot of people. A lot of people. I had breakfast at this bar, uh, and then, 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 then,